have a Bible with you and want to follow along, you can turn to the Gospel of John chapter 20. Uh, If you don't have one, that's okay. We'll have the words up on the screen. But we'll be in John chapter 20 uh, this morning. So my father-in-law looks exactly like Chuck Norris. And so much so that on a regular basis when he's out in public, people will come up to him and ask for autographs or pictures or things like that. So a couple years ago, he was at the mall in Arizona, and these two college-age girls come running up and say, Mr. Morris, Mr. Morris, can we have your autograph? And he goes, yeah, sure, I can do that. And so he uh, gets out a pen and uh, is just about to start signing their, their paper, and he goes, well, do you want to take a picture of me signing it just in case your friends don't believe you really saw Chuck Norris. They said, yeah, great idea. So one of them gets out her camera and takes a close-up of his hand signing Chuck Norris's autograph. (laughs) And I don't know for sure that they were Arizona State students, but I'd say there's probably a good chance. Um, It's kind of a funny thing being mistaken for someone else, and especially if it's someone... Uh, famous. This tends to happen uh, to our team of pastors here at Antioch pretty frequently. We have seven pastors that serve uh, our church, and people are constantly uh, mistaking us for celebrities. So uh, let me introduce you to uh, pa- Pastor Nathan Riley. He's our pastor of worship and formation, and on a regular basis, he goes out and people go, hey, aren't you Commander Riker from <laughs> Star Trek? Uh, Then we have Linda Van Voorst, who's our pastor of children's ministry, and uh, on a regular basis, people think, aren't you Britney Spears? (laughs) You can see it. Uh, Of course, Gerald Carper, who you just met, he's our pastor of youth and young adults, and on a regular basis, he gets... um, (laughs) (laughs) Always money in the banana stand. Evan, who you met earlier, our pastor of community and hospitality, former wrestler, so of course mistaken for (laughs) Stone Cold Steve Austin. Uh, Kip, who's in the back, he's our executive pastor, works in administration, finance, and very regularly mistaken for (laughs) Joey from Friends. Uh, Amy Kasari, our pastor of compassion and justice is often confused for Claire from House of Cards. And then me, my name's Pete Kelly. I have the privilege of serving as our lead pastor. And you might think Drew Carey, uh, Seth Rogen, the Verizon, can you hear me now guy. Surprisingly, that's not the one I get. Most often, um, it's... Personally, I don't see it, but... um, It is what people think. Actually, more honestly, it looks like this. So so that's kind of our team of celebrity lookalikes here, and we will be out in the lobby afterwards signing autographs if you want to grab a picture or something. Um, But this morning, we're actually celebrating uh, another story that contains a case of confused identity. And the passage that Carrie read for us just a moment ago um, is from the Gospel of John. And so, which if you don't know, uh, within our Bible, we have these four spiritual biographies of Jesus of Nazareth, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we call these the Gospels. Gospel is a word that means good news. And so that tells us something about the goal that these authors have in composing these spiritual biographies of Jesus. They want to announce good news about who Jesus Jesus is and what he has come to do through his life, death, and resurrection from the dead, and how in that story and in that person we find hope for the world 
and hope for our lives. And so in the first 10 verses that Carrie read for us, we hear of how one of Jesus' very closest friends and followers, a woman by the name of Mary Magdalene, not to be confused with Mary, the mother of Jesus, she goes to visit the tomb where just two days earlier she had witnessed Jesus' dead body being buried. And she had been there on Friday watching as Jesus suffers and dies on the cross as an enemy of the state, as a threat to the empire. She's there as they transport his dead body into the tomb and roll this massive stone in front of the grave. And now two days earlier on what we're told is the first day of the week, the first day of the week, she finds that as she goes to visit her friend who's been buried and, <clears throat> and to anoint his body, that the, t- the stone has been rolled away and the tomb is empty. Now, nobody knows, the author tells us right there in John 20, that nobody knows what happened to Jesus' body. Nobody, nobody was expecting him to rise from the dead because that's not what people do. Dead people tend to stay dead. And nobody had any expectation that anything otherwise was going to happen. And so everybody, including Mary, assumes that Jesus' body has been stolen, that his grave has been robbed. Like, what other explanation could there be? But let's keep reading. In John chapter 20, starting in verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. And at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. So here's the scene. She's standing there devastated, and she turns around, and there's this man behind her. Now pay close attention to how the author tells the story of this interaction. The author tells us that this mysterious man was Jesus, but that Mary couldn't recognize him, which is kind of a bummer if you're Jesus, right? Like you rise from the dead, and your best friends don't even recognize you. Um, Kind of a disappointment. But this is where we come back to this case of mistaken identity. It's not just that she didn't recognize Jesus, is that she thought he was someone else. And specifically, she thought he was the gardener. Now, I don't think this is just one of those uh, kind of meaningless lines that the author puts in to paint a picture. I think there's a reason John gives us this detail. I don't think it's just a case of coincidental mistaken identity. And what you'll find is that biblical authors are constantly doing this kind of thing. They drop little Easter eggs, if you pardon the pun, throughout their writings. And there's little clues, uh, little tricks that people who have read the Bible throughout the centuries have learned to try to uncover some of the layers of meaning behind biblical texts. And so one of those tricks is the principle of first mention. And so whenever you come across a significant word in the scriptures, um, go back and find out where the first time in the entire Bible that word is ever mentioned. 
and you'll start to understand something about the meaning of those texts. And so, for example, in John's gospel, he's already done this several times, but one of the places he does it is in John 3.16, which is the first time that he uses the word love in his gospel. And it's, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And if we go back and find out where's the first time that the Bible mentions the word love, we find that it's in the book of Genesis chapter 22, and it's this story where God tells Abraham, take your son, your one and only son, whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice. And so John is doing something intentional in his gospel. He wants his readers to see a connection between God and his son and Abraham and his son. And the first readers of John's gospel would have been able to recognize that right away. Most of us need a little more help. And so back to the empty tomb, Mary doesn't recognize Jesus. She thinks that he's the gardener. So where's the first mention of a garden in the Bible? Many of us will know it's in Genesis chapter 2, the story of God creating the heavens and the earth and preparing this beautiful garden designed to be a place where human life can flourish. The first two chapters of the Bible give us this beautiful poetic description of how God's vision for humanity would come together in this place that he creates, a place marked by right relationships between humans and God, between humans and one another, between humans and ourselves, and between humans and the rest of creation. This was God's design from the beginning for the world. And so in the beginning of the story, God is portrayed as the gardener. And then as this story goes on, we see what happens to these people in this garden in Genesis. That they choose to live their lives apart from God. They choose to, if you will, be their own gods instead of live in line with the way God had created and called them to live, and they end up, of course, losing their place in the garden. And death enters into the world. Sadness enters into the world. Loneliness enters into the world. Injustice and hatred and evil and everything that's broken about the world we live in today starts with this garden being rejected and paradise is lost. And so that's the first mention of a garden in the Bible. And now John, many, many years later, would tell us that Jesus is buried in a garden tomb. And Jesus is mistaken for the gardener. And I think John wants us to see a connection between the garden of Eden and the garden of resurrection. It's not a coincidence that she thinks he's the gardener. There is a new creation underway. There's a new Adam on the scene, and he's reversing the curse of death that devastated his first creation, and he's doing it all in a garden. He's restoring, refounding, replanting the world, and he's entering into this world, this original created world that has been broken but is not gone, and he's restoring all things back to himself. Now, many readers of the Bible have made this connection and observation throughout the years. But one of my favorite quotes is from the great G.K. Chesterton. He says, On the third day, the friends of Christ coming at daybreak to the place found the grave empty, 
and the stone rolled away. In varying ways, they realized the new wonder. The world had died in the night. And what they were looking, for, looking at was the first day of a new creation, with a new heaven and a new earth. And in a semblance of a gardener, God walked again in the garden, not in the cool of the evening, but in the dawn. What a beautiful picture. And so for many of us, uh, as Antioch, we gathered here two days ago on Friday night to commemorate Good Friday, the day that Jesus suffered and died. And I know for many of us, we left that night feeling the weight of his pain and his suffering for bearing the sins of the world. And it's nice on Friday nights, on nights like Friday, to be able to say to one another, Sunday is coming. But I hope that you're starting to see that Easter is way more than just the happy ending to Good Friday. In fact, Easter is way more of a beginning of something new than it is of any kind of ending. It's the announcement that the gardener is back, that there's a new creation sprouting up all around us, and it's growing out of the soil beneath our feet. And the first seed that's planted in this garden by God is this person, this human being named Jesus. And now he is the first fruits of this new resurrection reality. That just as he goes into the ground dead, he comes out alive, and it's a Hebrew understanding of first fruits would be that there's way more where that came from. It's this promise of hope that what God has done in raising Jesus from the dead is what God wants to do for the entire world. That God has not given up on this world, but he's entered into it deep beneath the soil and he's bursting forth in the form of the victorious risen king. And so another connection early readers would make is that this the first man, Adam, was called by God to be a co-gardener, a co-creator, a co-cultivator of this world. That God invites the first humans to join him in this project of bringing about a world full of beauty and truth and meaning and goodness. But the first humans failed at this. But as we see in this new garden, there's also a new Adam. And this gardener will succeed at his task, ultimately. And so what we need to be reminded of is that the way the Gospels want us to think and see this Jesus is ultimately as the gardener of new creation, as the one who is the first fruits of this new resurrection reality, the one who we look to with this promise of hope for our lives and for the world. Jesus is the gardener. Mary was not mistaken. He's not a life coach. He's not a motivational speaker. He's not a cop. He's not a lawyer. He's a gardener cultivating resurrection life in all who would come to him. And so as we know, a gardener's work is earthy, and intimate and dirty. Gardeners constantly have their hands in the mess. Gardeners like handling living things 
And Jesus, we see as the gardener, is not afraid to get his hands dirty in the mess of humanity. And so the fact that Jesus is a gardener with a good heart and a green thumb should change our perspective on life. And I promise you this morning that no matter how messed up your life is or how lost you feel, that you are not so messed up that Jesus can't nurture you into a flourishing state. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And so, uh, two points. The first is that if this gospel is true, that God hasn't given up on the world, but he has entered into it in the person of Christ and he's making all things new, then the first point is that this means there's hope for the world. There is hope for the world, and it is so easy to get lost in a feeling of hopelessness when we read through the news and the tragedies and the shootings and the bombings and the earthquakes and the disease and the destruction, the injustice, the pollution, the racism, all the brokenness of our world and what we have in this gospel message that Jesus is the gardener of a new world and that there is hope for this world. So sometimes when we talk about Easter, we talk about it like the point of Jesus rising from the dead is so that one day when we die, we can fly off to a place called heaven where we'll spend eternity sitting on clouds, playing harps, wearing diapers, which sounds like hell, not heaven, right? <laughs> That's not the vision of the, of the Bible, that somehow this world is just like a, a temporary holding tank until we get our wings. That's the exact opposite message of what the Bible teaches and the exact opposite of what resurrection means. What the resurrection means is that this material world, this place, this planet, these people are so important to Jesus that he came from heaven to redeem it and to bring it all back together. And so Easter means that this world is worth fighting for. The Easter reminds us that God has not abandoned the world. And because of this, as Easter people, followers of Jesus, are people who care about this world and aren't afraid to join God in this new garden and get our hands dirty in the brokenness, in the suffering, in the injustice, in the separation of the world because there is hope. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright puts it this way. The message of the resurrection is that this world matters, that the injustices and pains of this present world must now be addressed with the news that healing, justice, and love have won. If Easter means Jesus Christ is only raised in a spiritual sense, then it's only about me and finding a new dimension in my spiritual life. But if Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world. News which warms our hearts precisely because it isn't just about warming hearts. Easter means that in a world of injustice, violence, and degradation, a world of injustice, violence, and degradation are endemic. God is not prepared to tolerate such things. And we will work and plan with all the energy of God to implement the victory of Jesus over them all. That is good news. And so if Easter is true, then followers of Jesus should never fall in the trap of being so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good. 
We should be the most passionate people on the planet when it comes to working along Jesus as co-creators, co-gardeners, co-cultivators, to making the world a beautiful place, to contributing to all of its potential for human flourishing, to restore, to join God in restoring all things back to himself through Christ. We should be people devoted to entering into the mess, entering into the dirt, the pain, the suffering, and brokenness of the world because we have the courage and joy of knowing that we are partnering with God in, the, in his work in our world. And so the Bible teaches that the resurrection of Jesus is the turning point of human history. And it was the beginning of God's restoration project in the world. There is hope for this world. Before we move on, I want to show you that this is a totally unique aspect of Christianity. That no other religion as much a goodness and morality and, uh, and whatever else of merit other religions would bring into the world, no other religion actually offers this kind of hope for the world. And in the wake of the Sri Lankan uh, devastation this weekend, listen to the words of Vinath Ramachandra, a Sri Lankan theologian. Christian salvation lies not in escape from this world, but in the transformation of this world. You will not find hope for this world in any other religious system or philosophy. The biblical vision is unique, and that is why when someone says there must be salvation in other faiths, I ask them what salvation they're talking about, not the salvation of the world. No faith holds out a promise of eternal salvation for the world like the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And so this is the good news. If the tomb is empty, if the gardener's back, there is hope for this world. And secondly, there's hope for your life. And there's hope for my life. When we go back to the text, we see this first interaction that John records between uh, the risen Jesus and his friend and follower, Mary. And the very first thing that we see happening is Jesus comes across this woman and she's crying in a garden. And Jesus comes to her and asks a set of questions. Verse 15, woman, why are you crying? And who is it that you're looking for? And again, first readers would go back and think, this sounds like another encounter between a gardener and people in Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve have rejected life in God's garden, and God goes looking for them. Where are you? What have you done? Now, why would God, who we presume already knows the answer to these questions, why would he ask questions? Why would Jesus ask why Mary's crying? Of course he knows why. What it reveals to us is something about the heart and character of the gardener. That he's inviting us into relationship. That he's inviting this new creation, not just to happen all around us, but to happen within us. That he's wanting to begin the process of raising the dead within us. And so Jesus speaks these two questions. First, Mary, why are you crying? 
What's missing in your life? Where are you broken? Where are you in need of hope and healing and restoration? Where are you hurting and grieving? What is it that you've lost and never get back? And secondly, he asks, who is it that you're looking for? Everyone's looking for something. Everyone is hoping or placing their trust or confidence in someone or something. What is it that you want? What is it that you really want? And who are you looking to, to get those deepest needs of your soul fulfilled and the deepest longings of your heart satisfied? And I wonder if we might this morning place ourselves in Mary's shoes and hear Jesus asking us these same two questions. Wherever you are today in your life story, in your faith journey, would you listen and hear Jesus ask, why are you crying? Where is the brokenness, the pain, the guilt, the shame, the fear that controls your life? And who is it that you're looking for? Who are you going to trust your life to? Which philosopher or politician or guru or rock band or artist are you trusting? And do either of those questions reveal the longing of our hearts is to be restored back to God and to join him on his mission of restoring all creation. Now what's interesting in verse 16, Mary, for the first time, after mistaking him for the gardener, she finally recognizes Jesus. But it wasn't because of his appearance. It wasn't because of the way he looked. It was because she heard him say her name. Mary, Jesus said to her, And she turned toward him and cried out. She heard that loving, compassionate, hopeful, kind voice. The voice of the one who made her, the voice of the one who knew her. And when it felt like all hope was lost for the world and for her, she hears the voice of Jesus. She's reminded of the character of God, his grace, compassion, mercy, forgiveness, and love. And she sees him. And so I wonder if we might hear Jesus calling our voice today, calling our name today as well. And maybe it's in a way that you can't quite describe, but you have this sense that Jesus is speaking to you this morning inviting you into a new life with him, offering to bring this resurrection power, this new garden reality, and to let that work begin within your own soul, to be made new, to be forgiven, to be adopted into his family, to be empowered by his spirit, and to join him on his mission in the world. 
We may not always recognize Jesus, but he knows exactly who we are. He knows everything about you. He's the gardener who made, it, made you. He's the savior who lived and died for you. And he's the king who rose from the dead for you. And when, Je when Jesus speaks her name, when she sees him, how does she respond? She turns towards him. She turns her back on her old life, her old reality, and runs and falls into the arms of Christ. And so that would be my invitation for those of you today who are sitting here and sense that this good news has something to do with you, that this gardener has something that he wants to do in you, that this gospel has something that it wants to say to you. Hear him call your name. And though you may not get it or still have all your questions answered, the promise and the hope is that everything we need is found in the arms of this Savior. Hope for the world, hope for your life. And so for whether it's for your first time or your thousandth time, my invitation to you today is to hear his voice, to believe the good news, to turn from your sin and life without God and run into the arms of Jesus and let this resurrection power start within Sound good? Why don't you stand, we'll pray, and in a few moments we're going to come to the table and respond. Lord Jesus Christ, we declare you as the king of the world, that you are who you said you are, you've done what you've said you're gonna do, and we celebrate this story today, that you are here with us by your spirit that you are here inhabiting the praises of your people, that you are here raising the dead within us and among us and all around us. God, and we pray that you would give us a true vision of the glory of this gospel, that there is hope for this world, that there is hope for our lives, that all is not lost, that one day everything sad is gonna come untrue, but we don't have to wait for eternity to get there, but you have brought heaven to us in the form of this seed the seed of your son who suffered and died on our behalf but has victoriously risen, conquering sin, death, and hell forever. And so we praise your name this morning, God. We trust you with our lives and we invite you, Holy Spirit, to plant the seeds of this new kingdom deep within our hearts that you would give us faith to believe and the courage to join you in getting our hands messy in this broken world as we go out with hope, with joy, that the resurrection has just begun. And you're not done with us yet. You're not done with this world. You are our hope. We pledge our allegiance to you and your kingdom first and forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.